Melbourne's known for its graffiti, its laneways and its inner city living. But for some of its more unique experiences, you need to go up. Ah, Melbourne, the cultural capital of the country. Tourism campaigns like this one show laneways filled with people in summer drinking wine, dining outside under large umbrellas, squeezed into red brick alleyways, surrounded by bright coloured graffiti art. And people fly in from all over the country just to sample the restaurant scene. I mean, Melbourne hosts more live music gigs per capita than anywhere else in the world, more than London, more than New York and more than LA. So what's it worth? In 2017, the nighttime economy was worth $3.2 billion. But 30 years ago, 1980s Melbourne? Hilariously dead. It was like, you know, people used to, you talk about, um, you know, on a Sunday and people used to have cricket games in the streets in Melbourne because there was just, there was nothing to do here. Everybody would go home and uh, there was no, there was very few people living in the city. And uh, it really was a very, very emptied out ghost town every weekend. People would be, yeah, would be really surprised to know that, you know, Melbourne food culture as it exists right now is probably, you know, 20 years old. That's Michael Harden, a food critic and writer on Melbourne culinary history. I mean, pubs were the go-to places. I mean, there was nothing open. You could shoot a gun in Ligon Street in the 70s at 7.30 at night and you wouldn't kill anybody. Everything was done before 6pm. You drank everything and you ate everything. That's Tiberio Danini from the Danini family, who have been running Italian restaurants and wine bars in Melbourne since the 1950s. Up until 30 years ago, Melbourne was a ghost town after dark. So who and what made it shift? Hi, I'm Kate Follington and you're listening to the podcast Look History in the Eye, produced by Public Record Office Victoria. We have 100 kilometres of public records and archives about Victoria's past carefully preserved in climate-controlled vaults. We meet the people who dig into those boxes, look history in the eye and bother to wonder why. A few months ago, I discovered a protest poster in some correspondence records from a local council. It's not a poster about social justice or human rights. It's about beer. It was folded neatly inside a manila folder of records, catalogued under the title Liquor Control Act. And the poster is quite large. It's white, and the word hogwash in block letters is printed across the top. Underneath it, in dot points, it accuses a man called John Nevenhausen of trying to cause a revolution in drinking habits in Melbourne. It claims that people in Melbourne don't want to be like Paris. They don't want people to drink more after dark. We're talking about the year 1986. And the Australian Hotels Association was feeling the heat of change breathing down its neck. They needed to convince the public that the only place for a civilised beer was inside their hotels. And anyone who dared to suggest otherwise was full of hogwash. I mean, how ironic. Because between 1916 and the 1960s, hotels benefited from one of the grossest and uncivilised drinking practices of any city in the world. It was known as the six o'clock swell. 
originally came about um, from World War One, where people were worried, the government was worried that um, if, you know, the young soldiers were getting drunk late every night, then they weren't going to be able to fight the Kaiser properly when he finally arrived or when they went over there. So um, they, they limited, they pulled it back to six o'clock closing, which was an absolute disaster. Um, in terms of, you know, any kind of food culture, but also actually, you know, terms of social engineering, it was a, it was a, it was a shocker because it was, people would just binge drink every night in the pubs. They'd finish work. And this went on in, in Melbourne, like in Victoria until the 1960s, where the pubs would all, you couldn't get a drink after six o'clock. So people, mostly men, would be working in the city, pour out of their office box or their, you know, their construction sites, wherever they were working and run to the pub and just down as many beers as they could in the final hour before um, the pub closed. And it even affected the way that the design of pubs and the way the pubs were built and how they were decorated. So they, pubs became, a lot of the pubs became like, basically like a toilet block. They were just sort of like it was, everything was tiled so that it could be hosed out at the end. And there was, and the taps were replaced by um, spigots on hoses so that the bartenders could get to more, refill more um, glasses. So everybody would get, you know, they'd, they'd race in there, down as many beers as they could and then be tossed back out onto the street. So all of a sudden at six o'clock all over the city, you've got legions of drunken men kind of like, you know, going out onto city, which, you know, not great for the streets and also a lot of the time not great for their families at home when they got home. In order to truly understand what created this shift from the ghost town to the most livable city in the world in just a few decades, we need to go right back. No alcohol after six went on for 50 years until 1967. And so strange was this way of drinking that American soldiers during World War II were given videos to watch so they could truly understand their Australian allies. To share a glass of beer is to share a new friendship. So we cashed in. Sometimes the beer is warm, Dad, but they've had to get used to it that way. And it's got a kick like a kangaroo. It looked more like a bargain counter than a bar. I never saw so many people packed in such a tight place. But these bars are only open a couple of hours a day. Europeans who moved here after the Second World War were also understandably surprised that they couldn't drink alcohol with their meals at any cafe or restaurant that they wanted. So wine with a meal outside of a pub had to be drunk in secret. A lot of them, there was a very famous one in, in Melbourne called Mario's, um, which was run by the father of um, Mieta O'Donnell. They had a restaurant there that was, you know, they, they had a wine list and, you know, served a lot of wine, blah, blah, blah. But they were only allowed to serve wine until eight o'clock at night. Um, and they could be raided at any time. Like the licensing police would be out sort of looking for people that sort of if they wanted to, you know, um, serve alcohol beyond eight o'clock. And so they had um, big vases on the tables there. So, um, and they would have a postal lookout. And so if they saw the licensing people come, they would sort of come into the restaurant and everybody would pour their wine into the vase on the table. So, and there was, you know, people, you would drink, um, you would drink wine out of espresso cups in some of the cafes. Like I know that happened in Tiamo on Ligon Street. There would sort of like, you know, they would put red wine into Coke bottles. We always found a way, but we, we did get arrested a few times. And we, uh, well, I got... I remember there was one specific incident, I think it would have been about 78, 79, because I was, I remember it was about 10 past three on a Friday, and uh, 
two liquor licensing inspectors walked in and there was a table that had stayed on a bit after, you know, during lunchtime and they still had alcohol on the table, which was theirs. But by the letter of the law, we had to have all alcohol off the table at 3pm because the BYO permits went from 12 to 3 and 6 to whatever or 5 to whatever. And I actually got charged and went before the magistrate's court in Carlton across the road and the magistrate just shook his head. He didn't want to even know that some silly law existed like that. The hold that the hotel industry had over the serving of alcohol was extreme. Even after the 6pm swill was abandoned and hotels could serve alcohol until 10pm, restaurants still had restricted hours and conditions placed over them. The most privileged were the hotels because they could do everything. They could sell you a drink to take away, you could drink without food on the premises, you could drink with food. If you had a restaurant licence, you had to go through all sorts of hoops in terms of facilities before you got that. So one way for the restaurants to get around the hoops was to have what was known as a BYO licence. A BYO licence stood for bring your own. It was cheap and their customers could bring as much alcohol as they like. But of course they bought it from, yep, you guessed it, the hotel's bottle shop, but then they drink it at the restaurant. So in effect, even the BYO laws benefited the hotels and not the restaurant industry. And we were serving 100 people a night. So you've got to think that a table of six had come in with an esky. And the ones that didn't come in with an esky would come in with four, five, six bottles of wine. You had to refrigerate it for them. You had to open it for them. You had to provide the glassware for them. And you weren't making an absolute set. And I was always early on, and I don't think we ever charged corkage. The Chinese BYOs used to charge corkage back in that era, and rightfully so, but we didn't because we thought it was a bit of a rip-off. But it became logistically impossible to run a BYO if people were bringing... And then they started bringing in pre-dinner drinks. There were the ones that would bring in their bottle of port. So you knew you were in, as a restaurateur, you were in for a hell of a night when they come in with two bottles of port. You go, my God, they're going to be here all night. The licensing officers behaved like bullies toward the hospitality industry. And instead of nurturing what we now know, which is this massive food economy, encouraging multicultural cuisine, serving of local wines, their number one job as a licensing officer was to make it as difficult as possible for restaurants and bars to function. The number one job was to restrict the sale of alcohol outside of the hotel industry. The licensing court had huge powers. You know, they could, if they didn't like where your toilets were or the colour of your carpet or the style of your menu or the, the font on your sign, as well as anything else, like they could, they could deny you a licence. Some places around Melbourne fostered a more European style of wine drinking and food experience, such as the University Café which is still in operation on Ligon Street. And luckily for Melbourne, the University of Melbourne staff would often go there as it was nearby their campus. The university, the Melbourne Uni, the, the, the cultured society, the professors, they really were the forefathers of experiment with wine and varieties. And, and I used to enjoy their banter and their chat. And, and they used to teach me about Italian wines probably more than what I knew. But that was more a late 70s, early 80s thing, yeah. And one of their regular guests was the economics professor, John Nievenhausen. The person at the centre of the smear campaign by the Hotels Association used to drink bootleg alcohol at the university cafe. 
He was the person accused of being full of hogwash. As the poster claimed, he knew firsthand the frustrations of people who wanted to drink outside of pubs because he was one of them. Is when I first arrived in Australia. I came here as a lecturer in economics at Melbourne University, September 1963, and I became friendly with some of the students. One of the young students said, let's go and have a drink. And I said, where? There's nowhere to go. She said, oh, I know a place. So we went around here to uh, Ligon Street and we entered this cafe where they had those plastic tapes hanging up to stop all the flies from coming in. And you, you go through the plastic tapes and sit down and she said, well, we going to have the usual, please. And he came out with two teacups into which he had poured some warm puffery pearl wine. And he said, just watch the door while you drink. John was an economics professor from South Africa. He'd originally helped the state government of Victoria streamline the taxation system. What he knew about alcohol was pretty limited, except that he really liked it. In 1985, he received another call, this time from the Kane government, to review the liquor laws. And then I, I visited the, all sorts of different pubs and restaurants, and the people who influenced me most were the restaurant owners, because they were the ones that had all these restrictions on them. They, they had to have special kinds of uh, facilities, numbers of toilets per person. And I made a lot of fun in my report about the uh, Melbourne restaurant tram because they were very interested in toilets at the commission. And on that tram, one of the judges boarded it and had lunch there with a notebook and he made notes about the number of times people went into the toilet. And that's men and women going in because they like to have it separate. And he had to make a judgment on whether that tram could get a licence in the light of its toilet facilities. One of the highlights that my group never forgot was that we we were travelling around in a small town and went to the pub and the pub, in order to have a licence, is obliged to give you food. So we went in and said, well, you know, there are eight of us, we, we'd like to have lunch here today. And he said, uh, yes, I could give you lunch, but you are required for me to give me 24 hours notice. So the licensing system was strangling the ability for even pubs to be able to perform their basic purpose, let alone small bars or music venues, which in addition to not being able to serve alcohol after 10, were also bound by a food rule. In essence, this is in the 1980s, in essence, if you wanted to have a band play at your venue, like Nick Cave, and you wanted to serve alcohol, your clientele had to, by law, eat food with it. It became known as the bona fide food rule. They debated for two days um, whether or not pizza constituted a bona fide meal. 
The Hotels Association had a hold over the sale of alcohol in Victoria for almost 80 years, so it's no wonder that they were nervous about a review. And interestingly, the review was requested by the new Labor Premier John Kane, and John Kane was in fact a non-drinker. The Hotels Association were very vigorous in their opposition to my report, and they had been so for donkeys years, and they would give funds, donations, to parties in power, and in particular, the Liberal government with Sir Henry Bolte and others, they were very disinclined to undermine the privileges of the hotel licence. And when my report was finally accepted, January 1986, they accepted in the end 163 out of 187 recommendations, which was a good thing. And I used to say to myself, the person who's responsible for this is John Kane, mm. which was quite surprising because John had a reputation as being a wowser. The hogwash poster wanted to try and argue the case that a looser licensee system would in turn increase drinking in our society. But the truth was, and the truth still is, that more alcohol is consumed at home Two-thirds more, in fact, than in bars or hotels, according to a study by La Trobe University from a few years back. It's your attitude to drinking that makes the difference, not a licensing problem. The anti-alcohol people said if you increase the number of outlets, you'll increase consumption. In Italy today, in Italy in those places, and Switzerland where I'd lived in those days, you go to a little grocery shop and there's some bottles of wine on the shelf if you want to buy them. In Australia, you had to go to a special designated shop for that. And you, you can argue that, well, if you can get wine at the supermarket or wine in a little grocery shop, it means people have got access to it and they're going to drink much more. And I said, no, it's the attitude to alcohol that's extremely important. So those people who went into those shops and bought those wine were, were drinking it at home on a, on a daily basis or they were accustomed to going to small, inexpensive restaurants where they'd have, as a matter of course, a glass of wine with their lunch or their dinner or whatever. John reduced 27 complex licences down to six. He suggested a simple on-premises licence that allowed restaurants and bars to have a portion of their premises selling alcohol without food. They still needed a kitchen, but they could effectively serve alcohol without soggy wieners or old slices of pizza. And the same licence could then be used by catering companies, music venues or sporting facilities. And he recommended that licensees be allowed to serve alcohol, shock horror, at any point during the day. He created a unique licence for liquor producers, such as craft breweries and wineries, effectively paving the way for the boutique and local wine industry that is booming at the moment. He even recommended cinemas be able to sell wine, something we now take for granted. More than anything else, he removed the policing powers of the commission. He recommended that policing the licensee system should go back to the police and that the police should concentrate on poor drinking behaviour, rather than how many toilets a restaurant had or what was classified as a bona fide meal. So the, the liberation through my report and the Act was to allow licensees to do business as they wanted to. When we 
uh, did the report, there were 3,000 licenses in Victoria. And within about eight or nine years, there were 20,000. Mm. So the industry responded marvellously by saying, well, give us this freedom and we'll do it now. And that's why you see in Melbourne now, there are lots of little bars. They're going up all over the place still. By the 90s, Melbourne hit a recession and the city of Melbourne needed to do something really fast to try and activate the city centre and keep the economy booming. So the final step that has made Melbourne's street music and bar scene the way it is today was about to happen. Basically what we now know as the laneway culture. And there was a huge amount of empty commercial space in Melbourne's CBD. And um, so, and then Melbourne City Council decided they were going to try and do something about that. And so they um, had this initiative to encourage young entrepreneurial people into the city and give them really cheap subsidised rents in these spaces that a lot of them weren't street frontage. They were sort of up alley, up stairs and down alleys and in, you know, and the, the laneways that we know now were, you know, nobody went down there. They were, not, like, they were still considered a little bit dodgy and a bit dangerous, but there was all this amazing space down there. At the same time, the Crown Casino was being built on South Bank. And the Crown Casino had a whole bunch of bars. And they swiftly lobbied the government to remove the need for any kitchen in any of their bars. So finally, in the 1990s, just over 20 years ago, Melburnians could finally open a bar that just served cocktails, Negronis, martinis, specialise in boutique whiskey or fine gins, red wines, pisco sours or sake. These entrepreneurial kids that were looking at moving into the bar, into the laneways in the city, looked at it and went, you beauty, it's like it's a really cheap licence, we can just go into that space, we don't have to, the expense of putting in a kitchen or anything, we can just do this sort of, again, this sort of Melbourne punk DIY sort of thing, we can just kind of fit out this old space, open it up and call it a bar, play the music that we want. One of the first ones was by an architecture company called Six Degrees, and uh, who've become very famous, And but their, their bar was sort of like their, in Myers Place in the city, was like a calling card and a sort of ground zero for Melbourne bar culture, and they used... It was all recycled materials. Like they, they sort of found a beer fridge that was being pulled out of a demolished pub that they bought for a slab of beer from the builders. And they had, you know, carpeting on the walls that was from a house that was getting demolished in Doncaster. And so the whole thing was sort of built um, around, you know, just sort of, the, you know, they, they were architects, so they were good at design. And um, so that kind of put this template in and it changed everything. So there you have it. Was John Nevenhausen full of hogwash? as the poster would suggest. Was he wrong to change the liquor licensing laws? This poster, filed neatly among other government correspondence records about the Liquor Act, has led me down a path to understand better what makes our city one of the most vibrant cities in the world right now. Or did he simply and bravely pull back the hands of the hotel industry that was strangling our city's neck? When I went to a restaurant here in the city, I think it was Becco's, an Italian restaurant. The proprietor there knew about the report and he gathered all his staff around him and he said, look at this man. He said, it's because of this man that you've got your jobs in this restaurant. And they looked a bit nonplussed. And one of them came up to me and said, was it different in your day?